On a winter day in 1861, two men crouched behind a luggage rack at the Cincinnati train station. Today was the day. Nothing could go wrong. As Abraham Lincoln strode across the platform, they glanced at each other nervously. Lincoln's tall figure and chiseled jaw commanded respect. Hundreds of people crowded around him, begging for a moment of his time. This was the perfect moment for the men to jump into action. As the crowd surrounded the future president, the men quickly edged by the passengers. One carried a small piece of luggage in hand, and eventually the two men made it to Lincoln's train. Pointing to the small bag, they explained to the security guard that Lincoln forgot his luggage on the platform, and they needed to return his bag. The guard reluctantly opened the door and allowed them to enter the first-class cabin. They placed the bag under a seat and thanked the security guard before hurrying off. From there, the two men returned to their position behind a luggage cart and eagerly waited for their target to board. Finally, with the tip of his top hat and a wave, Lincoln bid farewell to the crowd and stepped aboard. The pair watched the compartment windows with bated breath as the president-elect soon took his seat and removed his hat. If everything went according to plan, the bag would explode in just 15 minutes and kill everyone on board. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Knights of the Golden Circle, or the KGC. This secret organization supported spreading slavery from the U.S. to Central America in the mid-1800s. For years... Members did everything they could to preserve the American South, even going so far as infiltrating the U.S. government. Last time, we covered the society's growth and attempt to invade Mexico. When that failed, the Knights pivoted towards aiding the Confederacy in the Civil War, a choice that would eventually lead to their downfall. This episode will explore some conspiracy theories surrounding the KGC, First, we'll examine whether the Knights buried gold around the United States, possibly even to fund a second civil war. Then, we'll discuss the role they played in multiple assassination attempts against Abraham Lincoln. And thanks to KGC member John Wilkes Booth, we'll consider if they actually succeeded once Lincoln took office. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. 
and through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. In the 1850s and 60s, a group of pro-slavery advocates formed the Knights of the Golden Circle. The secret society's mission was simple. Annex Mexico and parts of Central America and spread slavery around the world. At its height, over 60,000 white American men allegedly belonged to the KGC. Their influence extended from wealthy plantation owners to high-ranking government officials. But their expansion didn't last forever. During the Civil War, the KGC offered up manpower to the Confederate Army, which caused membership in the local chapters to decrease. As the organization lost influence in the South, the Union government arrested members hiding away in northern states. By the end of the war in 1865, KGC membership was dwindling. Yet, despite the Confederacy's defeat, some knights still clung to the hope of a rejuvenated order. In fact, some have speculated that the high-ranking KGC officials made a backup plan just in case the South lost. Which brings us to our first conspiracy theory. Following the Civil War, the Knights of the Golden Circle buried treasure across the United States. They hoped that someday, the gold would be dug up and used to fund a second Civil War. To understand this theory, we need to explore how the South transported gold near the end of the Civil War. Confederate President Jefferson Davis was a key figure in moving valuables during this time, and he just so happened to be a reported KGC member. In April 1865, the Union was closing in on victory. As northern troops marched towards the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, Davis and his cabinet feared their treasury would fall into enemy hands. The group planned to gather all the valuables they could find and transport them further south. Then, maybe the money could be used to fund a counterattack. They packed two train cars to the brim with Confederate loot. The first contained essential documents and top-secret files. The second was crammed with money from the local banks and jewelry that Southern women had donated to the war effort. Once Davis and his cabinet packed up, they boarded the trains and fled south. Only one day later, Union troops arrived in Richmond, Virginia. Northern officials had heard rumors that Davis escaped with an enormous sum, $500,000. At the time, the loot could have bought 100,000 acres of land. In light of these rumors, Northern authorities anticipated that the bank vault and treasury might be severely depleted, but not entirely cleaned out. They arrived to find both were empty. 
Fearing that this massive fund could soon be used to wage an attack, the Union Army took off after the loot. In early May 1865, Jefferson Davis reached Georgia. By then, the war had been over for a month. The Confederate president and his advisors decided it was time to disband the government and split up. They deposited the bank money in a city vault and divided the remainder of the valuables into two. One group of Confederate loyalists took half, and Davis's team took the other. Then they went their separate ways, each carrying thousands of dollars. A couple days later, Union soldiers captured Davis in southern Georgia. Yet, when they searched his belongings, he only had a few dollars on him. Union soldiers likely interrogated the Confederate president about the treasure, but he remained tight-lipped. All they could deduce was that the fortune was gone. Davis wasn't the only KGC member who people believe hid Confederate riches. In fact, one alleged knight was famous for robbing trains and hiding his plunder, outlaw Jesse James. James and his gang grew up in Missouri, And according to some reports, they may have been members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. During the war, James' group fought for the Confederacy, and upon its surrender, they returned home. But the South they came back to was devastated from the war. Work was scarce, and the men needed a way to support themselves. So they turned to robbing banks and trains. For over a decade, James and his gang made a fortune— Some believe the group amassed modern-day millions of dollars in their crime spree. Yet despite their apparent wealth, the men didn't enjoy lavish lifestyles. They lived modestly. There were no large homes or decadent purchases. Some even say they squandered the money on liquor and gambling. Others believe the group was more deliberate with the money, though, and that maybe they buried it across the United States. It might be easy to discount these theories about buried treasure, except for one undeniable fact. Multiple caches of Confederate gold were discovered after the Civil War. In 1934, two teenage boys decided to dig into the basement of an old house in Baltimore. Using a pickaxe, they burrowed into the floor until they heard a thud. One of the boys then lifted out a heavy can. As they peered into the container, some 4,000 gold coins shined back at them. It was no small discovery. Today, this would be worth over $12 million. These teenagers weren't the only ones to make such a discovery. In western Arkansas in the late 1970s, one treasure hunter devoted his life to finding the lost Confederate gold. For years, he searched the forests where James and his gang may have traveled. Yet one day, he finally discovered something that might point to the riches. There were tree markings that formed strange lines and symbols. He believed that these indicated something big under the soil. A cursory sweep of the forest floor with his metal detector didn't show much at first. But all of a sudden, the machine buzzed frantically. The man pulled out a shovel and dug. After a few minutes, he uncovered a small jar containing 19th century coins. He'd struck gold. The hunter continued on his search in neighboring Oklahoma, and for years, each time he uncovered a cache, it yielded small jars of silver or gold. 
For those looking for connections to the Confederacy, it seemed like these jars came from the very trains that Davis and his cabinet loaded up at the end of the war. However, the dates on one jar of coins ran from 1812 to 1880, 15 years after the Civil War ended. The timeline doesn't quite fit. Still more recently, a Northern California couple discovered an even more valuable treasure. In 2013, they spotted an old tin can poking out of the ground in their backyard. Inside, they found old gold coins. They were certain there may be more nearby, and by the time they'd excavated the entire area, they'd amassed eight cans of gold. Officials estimated the couple's treasure was worth $10 million, but some of these, too, were dated after the end of the war. It seems plausible that the Knights of the Golden Circle buried these treasures. All of the reported finds occurred near places with heavy KGC affiliation, Northern California, Arkansas, and Maryland. Maybe they knew there'd be plenty of local members who could easily reach the hiding spots. I'm not so sure. The Knights reportedly disbanded at the end of the Civil War in 1865. They were dispersed and disorganized. According to historical accounts, they didn't have any central leadership to lead such a huge effort. It would be extraordinarily difficult to coordinate burying millions of dollars in treasure. Then again, it may have been individual Knights themselves who hid the riches. While fleeing Union troops, Jefferson Davis is said to have taken millions of dollars from Richmond, Virginia, and not long after that, Union officials arrested him. He didn't have any money on him when the authorities searched him. Obviously, the money had to go somewhere. He may have hid it somewhere along his journey. If he did, it hasn't been recovered yet. Remember, some of the findings around Arkansas and Northern California were dated decades after the Civil War. The treasure Davis buried had to have been from 1865 or earlier. There's still Jesse James and his gang. We know they stole from passing trains. If they buried their extra treasure as they traveled, that could explain why the findings are so spread out across the United States. Some of the Northern California coins were dated after James' death in 1882, though. Plus, there are relatively few records of his involvement in the Knights of the Golden Circle. It's even possible he wasn't a member at all. They might have just spent their plunder on expensive lodges and liquor. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I give this theory a 2. While there may be Confederate treasures still buried around the country, I'm less sure that the Knights of the Golden Circle were behind it, and that they intended to return for it to fund a second civil war. After all, the dates on most of the coins were well after the organization disappeared. I see your point. However, I'm not ready to write off the KGC's ability to operate under the radar. As a secret society, I'd buy that they wouldn't even document the locations of their treasures. Plus, we know for certain that at least some gold was buried. For me, this theory is a five. The Knights may or may not have been linked to a plot to start a second civil war. Yet many speculate they may have been involved in an even more nefarious scheme, an assassination attempt on Abraham Lincoln. 
Coming up, the KGC plots to keep Lincoln out of the White House. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. The Knights of the Golden Circle backed the ideals of the Confederate South and may have planned to use the buried treasure to re-emerge after the Civil War. But perhaps their most notorious acts came before the conflict even started. During the election of 1860, tensions between the North and South were at a boiling point. The Southern states threatened to leave the Union if an abolitionist won the presidency. So when Abraham Lincoln received enough electoral votes to claim victory, many Southern states moved to secede. Meanwhile, KGC members turned their attention from expansion into Mexico to protecting the institution of slavery. And to complete this mission, the Knights may have intervened to prevent Abraham Lincoln from taking the oath of office. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number two. The Knights of the Golden Circle attempted to assassinate Abraham Lincoln multiple times before his inauguration. In 1861, Lincoln prepared to embark on a speaking tour across the North. He planned to depart from his hometown of Springfield, Illinois, and journey across the Union. He'd conclude upon his arrival to Washington, D.C. for Inauguration Day. But pro-slavery radicals hoped to stop him from ever getting there. Before he departed Springfield, Lincoln's closest advisors caught wind of rumors that a group planned to kill him. They begged the future president to reschedule his journey or increase his security. Despite their panic, though, Lincoln wasn't rattled. Even if he was in mortal danger, the trip would stay on schedule. Seeing the president-elect's adamancy, his advisors and others around them did their best to investigate the threats. One of them soon contacted renowned detective Alan Pinkerton. Pinkerton was known for his integrity and incorruptibility. He'd caught murderers, broken up counterfeiting rings, and thwarted bank robbers. Now, he was tasked with saving the president-elect. Pinkerton reasoned that whoever was planning the attack likely had deep ties to the South. So he insisted on bringing his assistant, Harry Davies, along with him. 
Davies, who'd lived in New Orleans, was well-versed in Southern customs and prejudices. With six weeks until the inauguration, the pair set off to uncover what was behind the assassination rumors. Pinkerton believed that Baltimore, Maryland, the only slaveholding city on Lincoln's entire tour, presented the greatest threat to the president-elect. Plus, there were signs that Maryland wouldn't be in the Union much longer. In the days leading up to Lincoln's visit, the state's legislature fiercely debated secession. Multiple states had already left the Union. Now, the rest of the Confederacy looked to Maryland for support. If the KGC was planning an attack, Baltimore seemed as likely a place as any. Pinkerton and Davies set out for Baltimore and arrived in the city prepared to assume fake identities. That way, they could better infiltrate Southern circles. Pinkerton pretended to be a stockbroker, a disguise he hoped might endear him to the city's upper-class Southern sympathizers. Meanwhile, Davies posed as a pro-slavery advocate with a burning hatred for Lincoln and the North. He frequented taverns around the city, hunting for Confederate activists. While they worked the city, the president-elect announced he'd be arriving in Baltimore on February 23rd, just after noon. As soon as the itinerary became public, Pinkerton and Davies felt the mood in Baltimore shift. Talk of threats on Lincoln's life were rampant. They had no doubt something was planned to harm him, but they couldn't stop a plot without its exact details. The detectives needed to work fast. Davies befriended Otis K. Hillard, a pro-slavery advocate who revealed there was a coded telegraph system that allowed groups to send and receive updates about Lincoln's location without authorities catching on. When Davies asked why someone would want to do that, Hillard said the code was part of something bigger. However, when pressed to say more, Hillard ended the conversation. Pinkerton, meanwhile, grew close with a local businessman named James Luckett. While discussing Lincoln's journey, Luckett made a few suspicious remarks. Notably, he doubted that the president-elect would make it through Baltimore alive. Pinkerton was curious about this comment and proceeded to offer him a contribution to support the Southern cause. This helped him gain Luckett's trust, and shortly after, the businessman offered to introduce him to the man in charge. That night, Pinkerton went to a local saloon to meet the man behind the plot. Luckett was already there and invited him to join them in the back where a group of men sat hunched over a table. They spoke in hushed tones, trying not to draw attention to themselves. One of these was a mustached man named Cipriano Ferrandini, a barber, a hairdresser, and a fiery supporter of Southern rights. He was also a known captain in the Knights of the Golden Circle. Upon hearing of Pinkerton's $25 contribution, Ferrandini welcomed him with open arms. Over drinks, he explained that the South must rule itself and how Lincoln would destroy their entire way of life. This meant the president-elect had to die, and Ferrandini promised that Lincoln would. Pinkerton had made critical progress in identifying the assassins, but he hadn't yet uncovered their plot, and they didn't have much time to figure it out, because the killers weren't just in Baltimore. 
On February 13, 1861, Lincoln was on a train set to depart Cincinnati for Columbus, Ohio. Just after Lincoln boarded, a railway attendant noticed a strange bag was under the president-elect's seat. Bags weren't supposed to be in the passenger cars, and no one could identify who the luggage belonged to. The attendant warily removed the bag from under the seat and unzipped it to reveal the bag's contents. It was a grenade, set to explode in 15 minutes. The attendant hurriedly passed the bag to the president-elect security guard, who thankfully was able to dispose of it without incident. An explosion would have killed not only Lincoln, but all of his friends and family in the train car. Though the train bomb had been discovered, the threat on Lincoln's life certainly wasn't over. Other assassins were closing in. Lincoln's advisors begged him to delay the trip. It had simply grown too dangerous. Again, Lincoln refused. Despite the risk, he refused to change his plans. He couldn't show the South that he was afraid. The president's train continued on schedule. Meanwhile, in Baltimore, Pinkerton attempted to piece together a working theory about the assassination. It was extremely difficult. Granted that Ferrandini had refused to give him any specific details. Finally, one night, the detective got a breakthrough. On February 20th, Hillard took Harry Davis to a secret meeting led by Ferrandini. The room was completely dark, except for a few candles lit along the walls. Wearing a long black cloak, Ferrandini made each of the 20 attendees swear allegiance to the South. Then, they turned their attention to the matter at hand, deciding who among them would personally murder Abraham Lincoln. Ferrandini held up a chest filled with paper ballots. He explained that while most of the slips were blank, he'd marked one with red. Whoever pulled the red ballot would be tasked with assassinating the president-elect. The KGC captain then forbade them from revealing who pulled the red slip. Much like other Knights officials, he valued secrecy above all else. One by one, the attendees took their ballots. Davy's slip was blank. Hiller didn't reveal the contents of his ballot, but he did confide something else in the young detective. According to him, Ferrandini hadn't placed just one red marker in the chest. He'd put in eight. That way, even if one person backed out, someone else would murder Lincoln. After hurrying back to Pinkerton's office, Davies revealed everything about the meeting. Pinkerton was convinced a secret organization in Baltimore planned to kill Lincoln and they finally had the specifics of how it would be done. According to their investigation, on the day of Lincoln's arrival in Baltimore, Ferrandini and his followers would start a fight at the station. The commotion would attract the attention of the police, leaving Lincoln unprotected. Then, one of the rebels would sneak onto the train and shoot him. The detectives were working on borrowed time. Pinkerton knew the president had to go through Baltimore to get to Washington, and if Lincoln stepped foot in the city, he'd likely be murdered. The only way to keep Lincoln safe was to move him through Baltimore unseen. So Pinkerton immediately traveled to Philadelphia, hoping to catch the president-elect before he departed. Coming up, Pinkerton tries to save Lincoln. 
Now back to the story. Once Abraham Lincoln was elected, he faced a slew of assassination threats from secessionists who wanted to protect the institution of slavery. And as the president-elect embarked on his speaking tour, Detective Alan Pinkerton worked day and night to investigate them. Pinkerton soon discovered the terrifying reality that a group of men planned to kill Lincoln during his stop in Baltimore, Maryland. Mere days before Lincoln was scheduled to arrive in Baltimore, Pinkerton met Lincoln in Philadelphia and divulged the plot to end his life. In order to stop the assassins, Lincoln would have to follow Pinkerton's orders to a T. So the next day, Lincoln slipped out of his hotel in disguise. He donned a long overcoat, a shawl, and a small soft hat. The detective and a bodyguard accompanied him. The three men took a carriage to the station where they boarded a train headed for Baltimore. Despite the danger, it was still the only way to get to Washington. The group stowed away in the sleeping car and prayed no one recognized the future president. Passengers walked by their compartment without realizing Abraham Lincoln sat just a few feet away. When the train pulled into Baltimore, they had to transfer to a different car, which required crossing the platform. To disguise his height, Lincoln hunched as they trudged through the crowd. Talk of the president-elect's arrival later that day surrounded them on the platform. Some people spoke of their hate for Lincoln, while others couldn't wait to see their political hero. None of them noticed the man in the shawl. The group boarded another sleeping car, and soon after, the train departed en route to Washington, D.C. Hours later, would-be assassins heard the news that Lincoln arrived in the Capitol before scheduled. They'd failed. A few days later, Abraham Lincoln took the oath of office. Despite the clear failure for any group to kill Lincoln before he assumed the presidency, I think we can agree that it wasn't for lack of trying. There was undoubtedly a wider conspiracy at play, though I'm not quite sure we can tie it directly back to the KGC. There are a lot of coincidences between Southern supremacists and KGC members, since they shared the same values. So while Ferrandini was a member of the Knights, it's impossible to confirm he acted on direct orders from the local chapter. He might have organized the plot independently. I see your point. While the organization had a long history of conspiracies, there isn't a lot of evidence they planned the assassinations we've discussed. We know they like to plan intricate schemes, but their history of carrying them out successfully isn't high. However, as you mentioned, the connections between the plotters and the Knights of the Golden Circle are undeniable. Ferrandini was a knight captain, and Baltimore was a KGC hotbed. For all we know, the gathering Davies attended could have been a KGC meeting. It just wasn't explicitly stated. Plus, the details about black robes and swearing allegiance to the South sound eerily like knights' meetings. That could be true. After all, if there was one organization passionate enough to plot a presidential assassination, it was the knights. Still... Without tangible evidence tying the KGC back to the Baltimore plot, I'm inclined to give this theory a 5 out of 10. Fair enough, but I do have a hard time moving past the fact that it was a KGC captain who organized the entire Baltimore plot. That would have been extremely difficult to do without consulting his fellow knights. 
More likely, he had the help of other members. For that reason, I'll give this an eight. Though the attempts on Lincoln's life in Cincinnati and Baltimore failed, the threat of Southern secessionists remained. And four years later, one would make good when the 16th president was murdered at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. This brings us to our third and final conspiracy theory. The Knights of the Golden Circle orchestrated the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The lesser-known fact is that Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, actually had a strong connection to the KGC. Long before he was known as the notorious killer of Abraham Lincoln, in 1859, Booth was merely a 20-year-old actor. He performed at a theater company in Richmond, Virginia. But it didn't take long before Booth fell in with a different crowd. As tensions rose in the United States, Booth searched for a way to support the South. After a performance run in Richmond, he returned to his hometown of Baltimore. There, he discovered some of his closest friends had joined a secret organization fighting for Southern states' rights, the Knights of the Golden Circle. Booth apparently begged them to bring him to a meeting. Eventually, they introduced him to the chapter, and he was allegedly initiated into the KGC. Booth relished his position with the Knights and used it to full effect. Thanks to his connections within the society, Southern officers allowed him to join a group guarding an abolitionist prisoner before he was due to be hanged. All that is to say, Booth wasn't just a member of the Knights, he was openly proud of his position. In 1864, he took on a far more active role in the Confederate resistance. He began plotting the kidnapping and assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And he didn't do it alone. During the war, there were multiple secret Confederate societies in the North. Even Confederate President Jefferson Davis ordered a group of Southern officials to set up a headquarters in Montreal, Canada. There, Davis hoped his representatives could contact those in Northern Resistance and concoct a plan to defeat the Union from the inside. In October 1864, Booth traveled to Montreal to meet with the Confederate officials. It's unknown what exactly they discussed, but Booth was said to have returned to Baltimore with $300 in gold, possibly as payment to fund the president's assassination. Back in Baltimore, Booth met with a man named Michael O'Laughlin Jr., another known knight. Throughout the end of 1864 and the beginning of 1865, Booth, O'Laughlin, and a few of their compatriots plotted the assassination. When they met, Booth reportedly made the entire group take an oath of secrecy. Similar to the KGC pledge, the attendees promised to defend the Southern way of life and devoted themselves to their nefarious cause. Even though O'Laughlin and Booth were the only reported knights in the scheme, they still operated like a KGC chapter. However, it's unclear if Booth actually ran official knights' meetings or merely attempted to replicate the society's ways. It's important to remember that the KGC was essentially defunct at this time. A report from a federal judge found otherwise, though. In the letter, the judge admitted that KGC activity had technically ceased across the North, but he believed they'd reorganized as the Order of the American Knights, 
O-A-K, or Oak. He claimed this new secret society served the same mission as the original group. According to reports, Oak was a group mainly composed of Northerners disaffected by the war, and it had spread across the Union. They wanted peace by any means necessary. And to top it all off, in 1865, Oak seems to have arranged a meeting with John Wilkes Booth in New York City. Though we don't know exactly what they discussed there, Oak could have given him advice or even orders. After all, the Order of the American Knights had the same mission as the KGC, and frankly, the same name. They could have been the driving force behind the assassination plot. Either way, after the meeting, Booth continued receiving help from other pro-slavery advocates all the way up to the night of the assassination. Booth had a connection to the brother of the owner of Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. He told Booth that Lincoln would be attending a play on April 14, 1865. It would be the perfect time to strike. Southern sympathizers continued to help Booth prepare, including the man who coordinated wardrobes at the theater, an alleged knight. On April 14th, Booth met with the KGC wardrobe man at the theater one hour before the play began. What they discussed is anyone's guess, but the connection between Booth and the KGC member on the night of the assassination is certainly suspicious. Afterwards, Booth crept up to the president's box, which was somehow left unguarded. Lincoln was transfixed by the play and didn't notice him open the door. Booth waited for a moment of uproarious laughter from the audience. Then he shot the president in the back of the head. Frantically, he leapt from the box and fled. It took federal authorities 12 days to track down Booth. They shot and killed him in a barn in Virginia. Two days before Booth was killed, two men had been found on the Potomac River, apparently waiting to take him away to Virginia by rowboat. Instead, though, the accomplices were arrested, and soon, one was deemed to be the leader of the Maryland Knights. The evidence is certainly compelling. There are plenty of connections between the KGC and the conspirators. O'Laughlin, Oak, the men at the river, and the theater employees could all be knights. That seems like too many to ignore. What I do find surprising, though, is that none of Booth's collaborators ever came forward about a larger conspiracy while in prison. Maybe Booth kept his superiors' identities a secret, though, so they wouldn't be implicated. He allegedly met with Montreal and New York Confederate representatives without his whole team. That way, he could have taken orders directly from the KGC hierarchy. That's true. Plus, it seemed like a fair amount of people knew about the attack anyway. Alone, as a struggling actor, I don't think Booth had the resources to recruit that many accomplices without getting caught. He may have used his KGC connections. Or Knight's leaders may have even arranged the entire team for him. Since he was willing, Booth was just a pawn in a larger game. Personally, there's just too much evidence of Knight involvement to say otherwise. Through every stage of the plan, someone close to Booth had a KGC connection. Plus, the men we've mentioned are just the ones who have publicly admitted to being a part of the organization. For all its secrecy, I'd venture there could be even more that we don't know about. I'd give this theory an 8 out of 10. I'm not as convinced. 
The Lincoln assassination resulted in one of the largest investigations in U.S. history. And yet, authorities only brought charges against the people directly involved in the planning. While I believe members of the conspiracy belong to the Knights, I wouldn't go so far as to claim the organization itself planned the assassination. I'm giving this theory a 5 out of 10. If one thing's for certain, it's that the secrecy of the Knights has left lingering questions about the group's impact on American history. And secrecy often means that you have something to hide. Whether that's plotting assassinations or burying treasure, similar societies that operate in the shadows could still be up to their own nefarious plots, even today. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Knights of the Golden Circle, amongst the many sources we used, we found David Keene's book, Knights of the Golden Circle, Secret Empire, Southern Secession, Civil War, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.